What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hello, yes, welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year, which is a podcast. It is a podcast. We are here to fill your bookshelf. If it isn't already, if it isn't already groaning with books that we've recommended uh, this year, last year, the year before, it will be soon. Just when you thought you could save some money or some (laughs) shelving, we're going to spoil it. Brian, who's in Florida. Hello, Simon. Hello, Matt. There's nothing better than looking at my phone and seeing a new Books of the Year episode is available. My 30-minute commute in sunny Coconut Creek, Florida. Wow, Coconut Field. Creek. I mean, it sounds like he's a, a ride at a fair. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. You don't go to work. You go to a, a fancy Peter Pan land. It is. But maybe it's like that in Florida. Anyway, it feels like a breeze when listening to you guys. Keep up the great work, although my financial advisor would prefer it if you went off air. Whenever I listen to you guys, I buy two or three books. I've recently enjoyed S.A. Cosby, Simon Seabag, Montefiore. I'll keep you going. Yeah. And David McCloskey, three authors I found with your podcast. Thanks for the pod. And P.S., please mention that my wife, Tanya, needs to support me in building additional <laughs> bookshelves in our home. Uh, we've been together for almost 24 years and I only have one main shelf. It's time for a second, no? I am trying to apply pressure from all angles and will play the episode when she is in the car with me. So, Tanya, I think another shelf. I mean, come on. Another set of shelves. Maybe, yeah, maybe three or four shelves. How have you only got one shelf for books? Maybe it's a shelf that just goes around the entire house. That would be true. I've seen very long shelves. That that is is true. Uh, An email from Helen, uh, who, of course, can write to us, as indeed anyone can, on booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Dear literary fiction and commercial fiction, I have been listening to your fabulous pod since its inception, and you are now my go-to for which books I should read now. Indeed. Uh, While listening to your recent conversation with Araminta Hall, I just had to respond to fellow contributor Mark, who asked whether other listeners revisit the back catalogue of new authors recommended by you both and your interviewees. Well, this is me, says Helen. Just a few examples. You introduced me to John Boyne some years ago, so I then read all his other books. The Heart's Invisible Furies has become one of my favourite reads ever. I think with John Boyne, I would not have discovered him but through... Through the, the this, this podcast pod, and, yeah. and what we did previously, uh, in turn, John. What, reco- was, what was that? What was I, I forget. I mean, it's all disappeared, yeah. hasn't it, into the darkness? Uh, in turn, John recommended American author Anne Tyler, so I read all her books too. There are lots, but I thoroughly recommend them. By the way, uh, Steve Kavanagh is another author who my husband Nick and I are working our way through. Then, on Steve's recommendation, and by the way, Steve did the greatest recommendations uh, ever. Um, on his recommendation, I got. 
Everyone Here Is Lying by Shari Lapena for Christmas. What a page turner. You've read that, haven't you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Not entirely. I bought it on his recommendation. Yeah, it was. he did such and a great Helen's job, right. Steve. Yeah. Uh, the list goes on, including S.A. Cosby, Ben McIntyre. As you can see, we read a mixture of genre, but I think that is the genius of your selections because I've discovered authors I never would have read otherwise. We are avid users of our local libraries. Good for you. Uh, we're lucky to have two within a couple of miles, and our usage has definitely increased since the pandemic. Every cloud, as they say. Anyway, keep up the good work. Many thanks. Helen Duxbury. Thank you, Helen. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email anytime. Books of the year at yahoo.com. Twitter is books at books of the year. Instagram and threads at pick any page. Right, let's talk with today's special guest, best-selling novelist and former guest on this here podcast. Yes, indeed. Alex Michaelides. Alex Michaelides, very nice to see you again. How are you? I am very happy to be here, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. You were also very jet-lagged. I, I am also jet-lagged, but, um, but still happy Where have to you be been? here. Where have you been? Where have you been? <laughs> um, I've been in America. Um, I, I'm doing a, my big first US tour, and so I have been all over the place. And now I'm in England for a week. So what is a big US... So this is presumably on the back of your previous two books, the first one of which is Secret Patient... Um, Silent, Silent Patient. Silent Patient. Secret Patient, that's... That's a different... That yeah. a bit, it doesn't, that's also a very English good title. No. So, yeah. Make a note of that one. <laughs> I should write that one next. Um, Silent Patient did so well uh, for your New York Times bestseller uh, and so on, and presumably these are the these are the benefits and fruits of a, being a successful New York Times bestselling writer. Yeah, I guess so. And also because I think the they didn't they don't tour um, debut novelists um, at uh, Celadon Macmillan, where I am at, and um, then the second tour got cancelled because of COVID um, for the second book. And so now I'm I'm doing a big tour, and it's 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 really it's a, quite an eye opener. Yeah. And is that a, a a tour of bookshops, is it a tour of radio studios? Who are the people who are talking to you? It, it's mainly um, ticketed events in bookshops. Okay. Um, and they're selling way bigger than our expectations. So it's a lot of people every night. And it's it's amazing to, to meet all these readers around the US. It feels very surreal, but wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So, but you, but you have lived in America before, haven't you? So, because mm-hmm. you you were a, a screenwriter. That's right. Yeah, I lived in Los Angeles for right. like four years. So you so you must know what to expect. Well, you think you do. You know, um, you know New York and you know LA, and then you realise that you know not very little of America. So it's it's kind of interesting seeing all the parts that kind of join up the dots, so to speak. And now you're the star. And that's kind of stretching it slightly. <laughs> but I think the book, the yeah, people love the book. And it's kind of, it's it's nice being a writer. It's nice. I can't imagine what it would be like to be an actor and be recognised and all that kind of stuff. So you're kind of you know under the radar as a writer. But people do love the book, which is which is really flattering. So the book is called uh, The Fury. Matt, will you uh, do your, do the honours and describe? Yes, it? I mean appropriately enough, given that this is uh, a book set on a mainly on a on a Greek island. It's a very tiny, dark Greek island, or the on the horizon. It looks a bit like Thunderbird Island. It does, doesn't it? Yes, <laughs> there's nothing around it, and it's set against. Um, a Mediterranean sky at dusk, so the red sky uh, dominating uh, the top half of the book uh, and the waves beneath it. And then um, the fury in big, white, bold letters in the centre with Alex Michaelides at the bottom. And then the the tagline at the top, there were seven of us on the island, one of us was a murderer, dot, dot, dot. And something nice from Lucy Foley, the undisputed master of the twist. Yeah, it's pretty nice of him. I think my favourite 
piece of punctuation is the ellipses. Yeah. Oh, I over, you know, I got in trouble with the first draft. My, my agent clearly sent him into a rage because he sent it back to me with all the ellipses circled and said, stop doing this and get rid of them. Yeah, I um, your agent is a, is a nightmare. Oh, so. yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. And yeah. he supports Manchester United. So really, you know, you just need to tell him, you know, if I want, I'm the best-selling author here. If I want to put in an ellipsis, I am going to put in an ellipsis. Thank you very much, indeed. I shall tell him that. Excellent. Why? So explain the title, first of all. Um, the title is referring to the wind um, in the Greek islands, um, because I think they kind of misrepresent the Greek islands to you as a tourist, um, speaking as somebody who is from that part of the world. Um, they don't tell you about the wind, and the wind does drive you crazy, um, particularly where this uh, novel is set um, in the Aegean. It's um, It's relentless. And I first got the idea for the book when I was about 20 and I was on the island of Mykonos and I got stuck there for three days because the wind was so tremendous you couldn't go. There No boat could arrive or, or leave. Um, not a bad place to be stuck. No. Um, but uh, then I thought, oh, that's a great way of keeping people somewhere. And then I parked the idea for, you know, 20 odd years and then came back to it. So the island uh, in which we spend most of the book is a made-up island. It is. Was it always going to be a made-up island, or was it actually originally based on Mykonos or somewhere similar? It's based on like a collection of islands that I've, I've been to over the years. Um, and it's also, I grew up on in Cyprus too. And so I found that aspect of the book easiest to write. I think it's because in my first book was set in a psychiatric unit, and having worked in one, I had already done the research. Um, second novel, I set it at Cambridge, but it'd been a long time since I was a student. And I then had to do a massive amount of research. And I set myself ridiculous ideas of like writing a Greek tragedy lecture. So I just spent a, a year working trying to, before I could even write the book. And this time I thought I wanted the setting to be something I knew really well. So I thought, oh, I'll just base it on a Greek island. And I just, you know, used my imagination living in Cyprus all those years. Okay, so so introduce us to the story then and uh, our central character. Maybe maybe start with the narrator. Mm, sure. Okay, so it's about um, uh, an ex-movie star who invites her six best friends to spend Easter with her on her private Greek island. Um, and then they get trapped there because of the wind and then there's a murder. Um, but what we can talk about this a little bit more, I think, as well. But what I wanted to do was to try and take that kind of familiar classic setup of people being on an island and then flip it on its head. Um, so I had a lot of fun playing with the twists and turns in the novel. So she, so, so the film star is Lana and mm -hmm. our narrator is Elliot. That's correct, yes. Um, who, who guides us through mm -hmm. um, uh, the entire... I just, want to, I just want to read something from page 199. This isn't going to give anything away. Just to give people an example of the kind of thing that uh, Elliot is saying, mm -hmm. OK? And if this is unfair, then... Actually, why don't you read it? Because it's your book. Just uh, the first three paragraphs. Sure. Now, Alex Michaelides reads from his own book. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> um, uh, perhaps this is a good place to pause and take stock before we proceed. I'm aware of the conventions of this genre. I know what's meant to happen next. I know what you're expecting. A murder investigation, a denouement, a twist. That's how it's supposed to play out. But as, I, but as I warned you at the start, that's not the way this is going to go. Okay. So, so what? So what are we? What are we hearing there? We're hearing someone who's who, who's playful mm -hmm. uh, and is trying to tell a story, but is meandering and, and so. So, who is Elliot, and what kind of a narrator is he? He is an unreliable narrator, a self-proclaimed <laughs> one. Good, yes. <laughs> uh, basically, um, he's the most fun part in the book for me. Um, I. Uh, I wrote the story in the third person 
first of all. Um, and then when I finished the first draft, it just felt lifeless and dead. And I, and I thought, okay, this isn't working. Either I can bin this or I can try and radically rethink it. And I was um, walking outside and I'm reciting the opening lines of the book to myself, as you do. And, uh, and I asked myself for the first time, who is talking? And then I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if it's this minor character, Elliot, and he's telling us the story? And until then, he had just his purpose had been just to kind of make wisecracks and drink martinis in the background. And then I thought, oh, it would be fun if because he's a playwright who's very aware of this genre, if he was telling us this story. And then the model for him, I suppose, was a bit, a bit like George Sanders in um, All About Eve or the narrator in Laura. Um, I love you know, this kind of 1950s movies. Um, and I thought it would be fun to have this kind of sophisticated, wry, you know, semi-sarcastic narrator. Part of it also came from my, my best friend is a critic and he read my first two books and he said, you know, they're quite serious books. And he said, in real life, you can occasionally be funny. It might be a good idea to try and get a sense of humor <laughs> into your novels. Um, and that stayed, really stayed with me, particularly having written such a depressing, miserable second book. <laughs> uh, I thought I really am going to kill myself unless I have some fun with the third one or stop writing. It was feeling, I was feeling quite negative about the whole thing. Um, and so to finally have a sense of, you know, an orator with a sense of humor, uh, was a joy for me. Yeah, I think you've you've definitely had fun uh, with this, Alex. Um, I want to dig a little deeper into mm. um, Elliot um, because I I suppose the question I'm going to be asking is how do you feel about Elliot? You've already said you you think he's a lot of fun. There is there's a section of the book I I always feel that uh, authors deliberately put in a little little clue to us as we're reading as to how we're meant to feel about narrators or the main character in a book. And uh, my little clue that I found was when Elliot starts talking about martinis and cocktails. And I was like, oh, my God, cocktail bores. I cannot <laughs> abide cocktails. You should have your own place, your own bars. If you're going to order anything more complicated than a gin and tonic, get out of my pub. I don't, I, I don't want to be stood behind you. I don't want to be serving you. Matt's so, quite judgmental. Yeah, oh, we, 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 so, we must so, never have a drink together, yeah, ever. Oh, right. <laughs> so, but, but that was a point where I thought, oh, right, Alex is... This is a little clue from Alex that I should not be wholly sympathetic to Towards, towards Elliot, I'm now picking up that actually that's something that I was I was wrong on that. You're but. making me laugh because um I I I have I'm I'm a I'm a recovering cocktail bore oh, and right. I um I have you know sent martinis back in my time until a, a good friend of mine said to me you know Alex it might just be easier for everybody if you ordered vodka on the rocks <laughs> yes. and I thought okay that's a good that's a fair <laughs> point so I've learned from that so I completely take your point but but just just to the wider point which is uh, or the wider question how do you feel about Elliot you say you say he's a bit of fun how would mm. you or how would you like us to feel but more importantly how do you feel about it I don't know it's it's an odd question it's a really good question it's really I don't know what, how other writers feel, but I find it, I think I have a different relationship to my characters than other people do because I don't tend to judge them at all. Um, and so I, my feelings get hurt when people say that Theo from my first book is a sociopath or stuff like I don't, or, or Elliot is divisive. Um, I do find that some people really, really dislike him. Um, I don't think of them like that. Um, I think of them a bit like my best friends, I suppose, and you can't really judge your best friends or you wouldn't have any best friends. Well, I wouldn't. Um, and so I, I, I kind of just um, accept them at face value, try to get into their minds and hearts and, and sort of think about what happened to them as children. That's a huge part of it for me. So I wrote pages and pages about their childhoods, which none of which made it into the novel, because I thought it was important that I knew that, but not necessarily that the reader knew that. 
Um, I just need to know where they're coming from. And then it feels easy for me just to have empathy for them. Because yeah. they, you do have, uh, you talk, there are sections about Elliot's childhood that do make it into this book. And that, that, is, that is a key part of where our, our sympathies sort of get, get attached more to, or more strongly to Elliot then. Yeah, I think so. I think it was a big part of writing the book for me, was thinking about his childhood. I've been carrying around that kind of stuff in my head for a long time. Um, and all the therapy stuff and you know he, he basically he um he has the same experience that I did in therapy where I had a lot of therapy because I was pretty messed up when I was younger and um one day my therapist suggested to me that you know all of us are carrying around a, a frightened wounded child in our heads and unless we're aware of that the child can very often uh, run the show um and that was a light bulb moment for me and I thought it would be really interesting to try and weave that thinking throughout the novel as well does that small child make an appearance every now and again or you know and is that a healthy thing if the small child makes an appearance or is it you just have to be able to spot when the small child is there and tell him to get back in his box uh, it's, it's not necessarily getting back in his box i think it's more about just being aware of when we we somehow we we can often confuse the past and the present and if we're feeling irrationally angry or irrationally afraid that's usually a, a red flag that, that more is going on here than it's just immediately apparent um, you might be confusing, you know. Like, I, I remember one one moment years and years ago when I was just in the supermarket and, and this guy behind me in the checkout queue was giving me kind of shifty looks and I felt really quite afraid of him. And then I suddenly thought, oh, wait a second, he's not my dad and I'm not eight years old. And for and the moment I had that thought, everything was put back in perspective and I was like, oh, I can also defend myself. This is a completely fine situation. But I think sometimes we, we act from the face of a, of a frightened child, if that makes sense. Yeah, so... Is, so you said you wrote it in the third person to start with, and now it's written in the first person, and Elliot is our guide. But we still there are still references to what other people are thinking. Yes. So we still see inside other people's heads. So how can that? How can? How does that work? If you're a, if it's a first person narration, that we kind of also know what other people are thinking. He is imagining. He says early on um, that I uh, am guessing what people are thinking, right. but of course I could be wrong. Um, you know, I think a major inspiration for the novel was The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford, which is one of my favorite novels. And I first encountered that when I was about 17. Um, and I uh, I would say that he's one of the first unreliable narrators in fiction in that book, um, where he tells us about his relationship with his four friends. And then about halfway through the book, we realize that he's lying. And there's flashbacks within flashbacks, and you don't quite know what version of reality you're getting from him. And I always thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, also, Simon, I, the reason it kind of possibly meanders in terms of point of view in this is that I, I changed the way that I wrote for this novel. I didn't plan it like I planned my first two books. Um, I plotted them for like a year, a year and a half before writing a single word. And the, the wow. it takes the joy out totally. You know, it's, I think you're doing it because you're, it's like a control thing. And also you're a bit, you want to make sure it all works, the twist, if you're building towards something. And this time I thought I wanted to have real fun, so I decided just to come up with the characters and the location, not know the identity of the murderer or the victim. Until, oh, wow, OK. So, so, yeah. you, so you're... Because Lee Child often said, well, he always used to say that that's how he approaches his story. He just mm -hmm. gets Jack Reacher walking somewhere and sees what happens. And um, Ian Rankin does the same. Mm -hmm. When he, he starts with a particular scene and he doesn't... And I find it almost impossible to comprehend how, how you can start and not know who the murderer is. But that was exactly the way you started this. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it doesn't involve a kind of... It's an exercise in having faith. And I was worried that nothing would materialise at the end. But it did. And so I felt really happy about that. Um, 
Having said that, it does involve a lot of rewriting. Um, you know, and that was when I when I was a student at the American Film Institute um, in Los Angeles. They we were always taught by the writer, the teachers, to outline, not write drafts because it saves time. And so you can write a million outlines, but you know, a million drafts takes many, many years. Yeah. And so that was part of where I was coming from. But I think in the future, I'm going to combine both approaches um, because I did get a real sense of I fell in love with writing again. And even the sad bits in this book, I was writing with a smile on my face. And it was fun, like there were certain elements like Elliot has a relationship with a kind of toxic older uh, writer called Barbara West. And she just appeared like fully formed, name, everything, backstory, everything, just as I w as he was telling me this story. And I've never had a character... Take... As he was telling you this story? Yeah, it sounds... It's your character that's telling you the story. Yeah, I think I'm. he's in a bar talking to somebody and I think I'm the person that he's talking to. Um, and I know it sounds wildly pretentious, but it's the first time I ever experienced... Um, because I let go of the reins, a character kind of come alive for me in that way. And it, it was it was really fun. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't think that sounds pretentious at all. I think that, I think there are a number of writers who will have that same feeling about how they're writing then suddenly things that they hadn't thought of before are just revealed to them. Did you have more fun doing it that way rather than planning it? Or if, let's say, for, for, for your fourth book... Which method would you choose then? Would you choose the planning or would you choose the sitting down and let's see what happens, even if it involves tons and tons of rewrites? I think it's. I think it depends on what kind of book you're writing. I think you know, that's why the Lee Child analogy is interesting and makes more sense. I think Ian Rankin, wow, that's brave. Because I think of this as a, a thriller, even though it's possibly more of just a character study. Um, but I think if you're writing a complicated detective story and you don't know where it's going, I don't know how you would do that. I think you do need to have quite a lot of planning. And I think for the next book, um, I'm going. It is more of a detective story. I have it planned, but I'm going to allow myself to deviate from the plan this time. I'm um, I'm going to be really careful how I uh, how I ask this question because I'm, mm -hmm. I we're really keen for people to read the book, and I don't want to give anything away. So, uh, you've already read that sort of section from uh, that, that Simon sort of highlighted. Of uh, I know what you're expecting. You're expecting twists. Well, this isn't a story like that. But nothing is as it seems. Let's say that. Okay. And the impression I got from the book was that um, that Elliot was that the other characters were appeared to be performing in a theatre production that Elliot had written, and they had no idea that, in in other words, that it was a drama that Elliot was putting together mm -hmm. that they had no idea they were actually in a that they were in this theatre production. That was well, that was the impression I was left with. Is mm -hmm. is it, would that be something that you would tally with, or is that uh, completely out of the blue? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think it was very much, it's about theatre, it's about acting. And to some degree, uh, rather everybody is acting in the novel and he's trying to orchestrate it all. Um, whether he succeeds or not is a, is a different question. But yeah, no, it's very much about that. Um, and it kind of, it was it was sort of, you know, thematic in a way too, because the, the characters are, you know, it's a world I know really well. Uh, it's about a, a movie star and a, a British theatre actress and a playwright. And uh, and so it, it felt natural to me that also the structure of the book, you know, it's, it's told in five acts. It's very much a theatrical piece. 
I didn't know that that was your background. So is it, this is the, could, could, clearly comes across in the book that that you know your stuff. I didn't know that mm -hmm. beforehand. So mm -hmm. so what is your background? Well, I, you know, um, I studied screenwriting and I wrote three disastrous films that got went from bad to worse, um, and it kind of drove me into writing a novel. Um, but I just, you know, Tom Stoppard always says that what you love, you're not necessarily very good at. And I and I love movies, and I wanted to be part of movies, but I don't think I was very talented as a screenwriter. But I was around a lot of famous people and kept my eyes and ears open and saw some really ghastly behaviour and thought, oh, one day I must write about this. <laughs> and then uh, I had the idea of trapping them on a Greek island and throwing in a murder. Um, so in a way, this this book is a, like the perfect combination of things that you know lots about. So the Greek island and the and the Greek mythology, mm -hmm. uh, badly behaving Hollywood stars and therapy. Yes, it's true. And I do think it's sort of you... You shuffle the same deck of cards, perhaps, or, you know, or was it Hitchcock who said, you, you know, every director just remakes the same film again and again and again. I do think there's certain preoccupations that I'm always going to return to. But I, the way I think about writing is never just one idea. I always think about it as a collision of ideas. So like with The Silent Patient, it was this Greek myth of the Alcestis I've been puzzling over for decades and then working in a psychiatric unit. And then a love of Agatha Christie. And then one day they just went kind of bang in my mind and then I came up with the story. And so that's how I tend to work now. I tend to think about different themes and then throw them together. A lot of people might have thought Agatha Christie's, when Matt was describing what, what's on the cover, mm -hmm. there were seven of us on an island, one of us was a murderer. It's like classic, yeah. an absolutely classic setup. And in the acknowledgements at the end, you mentioned Agatha Christie, Anthony Schaffer, Patricia Highsmith and Ford Maddox Ford, who you just mm -hmm. uh, mentioned. The Agatha Christie bit, I think everyone will get, even if they haven't read the book, they'll under, fr just from those two lines, they go, OK, yes, yeah. I sort of know where we are, though from the way you've talked about it, maybe I don't. Mm -hmm. Maybe I shouldn't feel too uh, too settled. Um, Anthony Schaffer and Patricia Highsmith, what is their uh, what is their input here? Patricia Highsmith, because, I, again, you, I feel like you can't... There's definite shades of Tom Ripley, um, and it was interesting seeing Saltburn because I thought, oh, how funny. It is kind of almost, it's in the same universe as my no novel. Um, uh, so, yeah, definitely thinking about Tom Ripley always when you, he's kind of, she's created this kind of anti-hero that we all are obsessed with in, in Tom Ripley. And it's definitely influenced me as I've been growing up. Also, just the glamour of it, I think, suppose, you know, like um, Talented Mr. Ripley is one of my favourite movies. And um, I think about Mangella a lot. And I... Uh, I was trying to recreate, live in that world a little bit. Um, and Shaffer, because of the, the twists, um, Sleuth is, is it one of my favourite movies, the original um, with Olivier and Michael Caine. Uh, and I've seen it so, so many times and it's just so clever. And so I kind of tend to, you know, the way I, I, I think I write as a fan, if that makes sense. And so I tend to obsessively reread, rewatch things absorb them, digest them, marry them with my own interests, and then spew something else out after, at the end of it. In what uh, way is Saltburn in the same universe as this? It's about... Uh, this is the, the Emerald Fennell movie, which is being nominated for... Yeah. Uh, if it, some people love it, some people do not like it. Yes, <laughs> uh, I, I, yes I'm aware. Quite uh, so much. Uh, yeah, um, just just that sort of... The, in the way that it's like Towns of Mr. Ripley, it's about a man who's trying, a young man who's trying to fit in with people who have a lot more money and a lot more sophistication than him and trying to, you know, endear himself to them. So is, is there something journey. of... So Elliot Chase, your narrator, is there something of him in Barry Keegan's yes. character? Who's the central character in... I think so, in yeah, Saltburn. definitely. And I think... Um, 
uh, I think Elliot. You know, the more the more we get to know Elliot, the more we realise that he's not quite as sophisticated as as he as he pretends to be, and that he's coming from quite a dark, messed up place. Yeah. We're, we're going to talk in the separate podcast about your um, your likes and dislikes as far as um, other books are concerned, but I, I do want to dig into the sort of the, the twisty side of things mm-hmm. because uh, I was a huge pa- uh, fan of um, Silent Patient and and this um, surely Secret Patients <laughs> <laughs> surely not um, <laughs> that would and, be the sequel. And, uh, and also the, the 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 idea with this book that as I say nothing is as it seems and I wondered whether that is a sort of genre of literature that you're drawn to Do, are, are the kind of books that you enjoy reading ones where we're not quite sure where there's where there's twists aplenty. Yeah, I mean, I I think for me it comes back to Christie. I don't think anybody did it better than she did. Um, and I think when you read a, a novel that's set on a, a small island where people die, um, you you she's hovering over your shoulder the whole time. And and I thought, what could I bring that's not just a pale copy of her book? And I thought, well, I can bring the reader's expectations because of her. Um, and the, the countless copies of, and then there were none. When we read a book like this or pick up a book like this, we think we know what we're getting into. Mm. And then I thought, okay, well, so what's fun is is then to have play with the reader's expectations and then to have a narrator who's very aware of their expectations. And so the whole thing becomes about a dialogue between the reader and the, and the narrator, which was a lot of fun to write, yeah. So when you're having your conversations with your narrator, um, d- were there any points that you disagreed with him i know this sounds like a surreal a very surreal mm. conversation but when the magic happens you know when you're mm. thinking wow where did that come from you mentioned barbara west you know she emerged mm-hmm. with her with her backstory mm-hmm. uh fully formed did elliot ever take you down paths that you thought no i don't think so or i think i need to wrestle him back to the story that i want to tell that's interesting um there was stuff that I cut, absolutely, yeah. I think he could have, he went on a, quite a, a journey telling us about his childhood and then leaving home as a boy. And there was, there, I wrote a whole sections of him being at school that eventually I cut. I, you know, there's, there's a point when I have this sort of kind of terror of being boring. I think it's inherent in the genre that you write. And um, I, he quotes Tennessee Williams at one point. I quote, he quotes, um, it was this, I love it. It's a, it's a Tennessee Williams advice to um, aspiring dramatists, which is don't be boring, baby. Um, do whatever it takes to keep the thing going. Blow, blow up a bomb on stage if you have to, but don't be boring. Um, and so whenever I felt that Elliot was getting boring, um, as in interesting to me, but not telling the story, I'd cut it. And again, that comes back from screenwriting. Um, Billy Wilder, always said that um, any scene without a plot point in it is a bad scene and cut it in the script form because you will shoot it and not use it. Um, and I've always remembered that advice. And so it's one of my cardinal rules is that every chapter has a has to have a brick, a story brick in it, a story beat. Otherwise, I won't let myself be in it, use it. And so um, I had to cut things unwillingly. But Just because it was interesting, but it actually didn't develop the story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Do, do screenwriters... In, well, you in particular, but maybe screenwriters in, in general, just inherently write cinematically, with kind of even if it's subliminal, even if it's just deep somewhere that you write in a way that someone who is going to direct a movie would go, I like that. I think possibly. Um, I think I didn't become better at screenwriting until I quit screenwriting um, because I think I my formative experience of writing. Um, anything really was um the last film that i made which i wrote um and uma thurman was in and we were on she set. gets a credit in the yeah an acknowledgement yes i, I dedicate i dedicate the book to her actually yeah 
Um, I wrote it for her because essentially um, I wrote this, um, I was writing a silent patient when we worked together and um, she gave me all kinds of writing advice um, for the silent patient, all of which I used. But more importantly, um, she taught me how to write visually in a way that film school never had. And I, um, she went through the script that we I, we had written for her and um, showed me why it wouldn't work, <laughs> which was kind of worrying as we were on set. And then um, she said some things that I've never forgotten. Like she said to me, Alex, every scene has to be an attempt, at least an attempt at an iconic image. And if you're not trying, then you're just failing. Um, and so it can't just be in her opinion, in my opinion, two people just sitting and chatting endlessly, there has to be something visual there. And so, for example, there was a scene when she was the heroine and she was being held up at gunpoint by the baddie. And I'd written that with, with her sitting in a chair. And, and Uma thought it would be vastly improved by the incorporation of Japanese rope bondage. And so I came home. I came to the set. I mean, set. most things were improved. <laughs> Japanese rope bondage. And I came to the set after lunch and I found Uma dangling from the ceiling, wrapped in ropes. Um... And it was that kind no of... No one's thing. ever said that before. <laughs> <laughs> it was an education. And um, I learned a lot. And I thought, well, one day I must write something for her. And then all these years later, I wrote, um, I wrote the part of Lana for her. And so, if you know, it's, it's, uh, it's been optioned. So this has been optioned. Mm, yeah. so, and, and you've thought of Uma as Luna Farah. As Lana Farah. Lana yeah, Farah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't read my own writing. Luna is actually the name of her daughter. There you go. The, that's obviously yeah, what, that's I was, that's what I was, <laughs> what I was thinking. Yeah. And would you inherently think instinctively think, I'm writing that screenplay. Well, Simon, funnily enough, I am writing that screenplay. You have started. Um, I have started. I've done a couple of drafts. I thought um, there were two things going on in my mind. One was I thought I, w I would be sick of these characters and this world. Um, but I think I chose well this time because I, uh, I, I like these characters and I'm having fun reimagining them, reimagining them in a new situation, writing new stuff. So that's great. Um, and I thought I wanted to have a go now. I feel like I've learned so much from writing novels, from the interiority of novel writing and from um, just practicing. I feel I'm better, much better writer than I was 10 years ago when I wrote The Silent Patient. And so I feel ready to have another bash at screenwriting. And um, I was been really scared of the initial drafts, but I've actually started, I've been enjoying myself very much. So, who knows? I'm sure they will replace me um, Im imminently. But I'm, in, I'm enjoying it myself. Uh, I, I think it's perfectly good form to quote another podcast, and I imagine you listen to the Script Notes podcast, which is yeah, a, I do const constantly, yeah. which is a um, a podcast for screenwriters about mm -hmm. things that are interesting to yeah. screenwriters, and they were talking about the screenplay for Oppenheimer mm. and how they'd never seen a screenplay written in the first person. I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. And I thought it was fascinating. Well, here are people who, who this is their world, this is everything that they do, but until Christopher Nolan wrote the screenplay for Oppenheimer, no one had done one in a first person before. What did you, having just done a book which is in the first person, as we've discussed, what did, did you think, oh... Maybe I could do that. Maybe with this or with an, with another project. Yeah, um, I I thought it was also yes, it was completely fascinating. Um, weirdly enough, um, the producer Nina Jacobson is an amazing producer, and she's suggested that we increase. I don't want to talk about it too much, but the add more voiceover from different characters, and so it's even more even more first person than there is in the novel. So I'm going into other people's heads. Um, I think it's really interesting. It's a way, I think what, why it works so well in Oppenheimer is because it, it allows you access to his mind all the time. Um, and I think that's, some, that's the, 
a difficulty in adapting a very confessional novel is that some of that gets lost um, in, and in the fury I'm talking about. Um, but by really focusing on that, yeah, it's it's kind of still has a psychological insight. I think it's brilliant, interesting, yeah. So you're working on the screenplay for The Fury. You've also said your next book is going to be a combination of the way you've approached the first two and the way you've done the mm -hmm. third. Is there anything else you could tell us about book four? Um, I'm looking into my childhood. I think I'm going to write about my parents. Um, I grew up in uh, a house where my mother is English and my father is Greek Cypriot. And there was a lot of culture clashes mainly about food um <laughs> i thought it would be fun to explore that world a bit so yeah I'm probably... and is it is it fun or is it problematic um, it's funny <laughs> whether it's fun or not i don't know we'll see um it's kind of sometimes you go to quite dark places of thriller writer and you think what well, people must think i'm absolutely insane but i probably am quite insane so um alex it's a pleasure to talk to you again thank you very much indeed alex michaelidi's book is the fury and uh, there'll be more with Alex in our companion podcast when we do the Q&A uh, very shortly. But congratulations on this and all of your success, all of which I think boils down to our original interview with you. Uh, yeah, for, it's all uh, from that. For, I, yeah. uh, for The Secret Patient, which is still the book that I... <laughs> which is the book that I read, even if it's not the book you wrote. Uh, more with Alex in a couple of days, but for the moment, Alex, thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. <laughs>